This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Schulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Robert Holub, who teaches at Ohio State University and is the former chancellor of UMass Amherst. Here to talk about his new book, Nietzsche's Jewish Problem, Between Anti-Semitism and Anti-Judaism, published this year by Princeton University Press. Bob, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you. So, Bob, maybe you could start by telling us a bit about who Friedrich Nietzsche was. Uh, he lived in the second half of the 19th century, is that right? That's uh, right. He was a ger- German philosopher, born in 1844, died in 1900. Uh, very well known and very influential, especially in the 20th century. Not so influential during his own time when he had problems selling his own books. But um, subsequently, after his um, after he went insane and, and at the end of 1888, and um, then when he died in 1900, he became a very famous philosopher. What's going on in Germany at the time? Uh, what major conversations is Nietzsche participating in? Well, it's my um, contention that he was participating in a lot of major conversations. Most um, observers uh, of Nietzsche and most commentators on Nietzsche tend to ignore the connections that he had with his time, but uh, he was very much involved with issues uh, of his day, the German question, which became a big question because Germany was not a unified nation until 1870, and Nietzsche was involved with that, both positively and negatively, uh, on the side of unification and against unification. He was involved with issues of uh, women's liberation, which came up at that time. The women, the first uh, big emancipation movement uh, grew uh, in the 1870s and the 1880s. He was involved, uh, of course, also with uh, questions of colonialism, which uh, um, Germany was a little behind in acquiring colonies, but there was a a colonialist movement, and Germany eventually acquired colonies in 1884. He was involved in the scientific movements of his time, Darwinism and evolution, as well as eugenics, and things like thermodynamics were also very influential for him, uh, those scientific um, uh, discoveries uh, of the 19th century. And one of them, of course, was the Jewish question, which was a pressing question of his time and was discussed by many people in Germany and in Europe. So 20 years ago, uh, you wrote an article called Nietzsche and the Jewish Question. Um, then you sort of put the matter aside and, and came back to it, right, resulting in this book. Uh, what attracted you to this to this question about Nietzsche and the Jews? Well, it was actually just one of the many questions that I was examining, as I said uh, well, when I first started to study Nietzsche in um, in the 1990s, I recognized that most um, most uh, commentators did not 
consider him as embedded in his time. They didn't contextualize his work, and if they contextualized anything, they made him part of a kind of a general philosophical movement. When I looked at Nietzsche's uh, library, for example, I saw that he had very few works by the great philosophers, the um, philosophers in the German tradition or the European tradition, nothing by Hegel or Leibniz, very little by Immanuel Kant, uh, but he had many books from his time. So um, I began to investigate that and saw that he was really in a debate with uh, various um, things, uh, about various things that were going on in the 19th century. And I decided to write a book in which I would deal with Nietzsche as um, a, um, uh, in dialogue with the 19th century in a certain way. And so one of the questions that I wanted to deal with was the Jewish question, and that was the question that I dealt with in that article to which you just referred um, in, um, in 1995. Um, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, it depends on how you're looking at it, I um, moved into academic, <clears throat> excuse me, into academic administration shortly after that, became a dean at Berkeley where I was for my first 27 years as a faculty member, became a dean there, and then was the provost at the University of Tennessee and then the chancellor at UMass Amherst. And in those positions, I had very little time to continue my research. Uh, when I arrived at Ohio State as a professor in 2012, I decided to go back to that original book that I was writing and uh, had to do a lot of research because a lot of people had written a lot of things in the interim. And when I got to the, um, to the chapter that I was writing on Nietzsche and the Jewish question, which was the title of the, of the, of the, of the article and the chapter, I found that there was so much material that I um, really didn't do it justice in just expanding on what I'd written in 1995. And so I decided to write a book on it. And that's how the book came into being. I found it very uh, sort of honest and refreshing that you mentioned at the beginning of the book, basically, not that that article was wrong, but that um, it was it could be more precise. And that's what you wanted to do. You wanted to to bring it up to date and make things a little bit more precise. Uh, how did it feel to come back to that material after such a long time? Well, it was a little bit strange. <laughs> there were, as I say, there were many things that were written in, in the interim, some of them good, some of them not so good. But um, what I discovered was that in going back into the material and looking at it in more detail, and I hadn't done a good enough job in 1995. That is, I hadn't read everything that I could read about Nietzsche. I didn't understand as much as I should have understood about what anti-Semitism uh, represented in the 19th century. I didn't know as much as I should have about um, Nietzsche's relationship to his sister and, and what his sister had uh, done or not done with regard to his reputation as an anti-Semite. Um, I hadn't looked at all of the early lectures in as much detail as I should have, and I hadn't considered closely enough, I think, his relationship to um, Richard Wagner and uh, Richard Wagner's wife, Cosima. Uh, as a as a as a really important moment in Nietzsche's anti-Jewish thought. So um, there there were things that were right in that article. Uh, I don't think it was wrong, but it wasn't really refined enough, and it and it was it, it didn't resolve issues that should have been resolved, and that I tried to resolve now in this book. A lot has been written about this question about. Um Nietzsche and anti-Semitism. Do you have a sense of why people are so fascinated by it? And, and why does it matter uh, if he was anti-Semitic? Does it impact his standing as sort of in the pantheon of philosophers? 
Well, let me let me say answer the first part of that first, and that is that um, I think it's it's it, it's important because it was um, an issue that most intellectuals in Germany faced, and of course, without without the Holocaust, it probably wouldn't be quite as pressing an issue. But because of the Holocaust, because Nietzsche was used by National Socialism as one of its um, precursors, uh, because Nietzsche was seen uh, outside of Germany as someone who had contributed to a certain militaristic uh, stance and toward um, a certain racist stance. Uh, therefore, it becomes an important question for, um, uh, for us as to how he, uh, how he really reacted toward uh, Jews and Judaism in, in his time. Uh, unfortunately, most of the uh, of the material that has been written on this has looked at it through the um, through the lens of the Holocaust and has not seen what the actual relations uh, were uh, that Nietzsche was entering into in the 19th century. That is what he was reacting against and what he was uh, discussing really in his writings when he mentioned Jews in in the 19th century. So that um, there's a, an entire group of people who excuse his um, anti-Jewish thought by um, because he makes various remarks against anti-Semitism. And he was against anti-Semitism. But we have to understand what anti-Semitism represented for him. It doesn't represent what it represents for us. We think of anti-Semitism as anti-Judaism or equated with anti-Judaism. But anti-Semitism for Nietzsche in the uh, 1880s, when anti-Semit, the anti-Semitic movement was just beginning in um, in Germany and then spread to other countries in, in, in Europe, that anti-Semitic movement was a, poli- a specific political movement to which Nietzsche had to react because he had personal relationships with it because of his publisher and because of his sister. And so there were, uh, th- there were, there were things that he was reacting against that had not as much to do with his feelings about Jews as it did about a specific political movement of his time. And so his anti-Semitism, which people took after the war in many cases to be um, uh, the token of his uh, philo-Semitism, let's say, was mistaken. That is, his opposition to anti-Semitism doesn't tell us everything we need to know about his relationship to Jews and Judaism. And there remained in his thought a kind of an anti-Jewish or Judeophobic um, um, underpinning throughout um, his uh, conscious lifetime. So that's one of the things that I tried to clear up in the book. Now, why it's important for us, I think it's important uh, because when you're looking at a philosopher, uh, and especially one who's very critical of many uh, philosophical tenets uh, and um, of many um, moral ter- tenets, I think you have to look and see how he reflected upon his own prejudices. And here is a case, and we could also expand that to his views of women, but here is a case where Nietzsche was not very good at reflecting, I think, upon his own prejudices and rising above them and seeing that um, that um, he harbored some of the tradition uh, in, in Germany, some of the anti-Jewish tradition while he was writing. So that does um, give us pause, or does give me a little bit of pause when I when I look at his at his writings, because he was not quite as uh, critical and not quite as self overcoming as he sometimes portrays himself. Right. 
uh, just to go back to your so the first part of that question, so you know the, the thinking of anti-Semitism as a political movement um, grounded in the late 19th century um, is really sort of the key to understanding the difference between that and what we think of as just regular anti-Semitism today. How did you sort of come up with the distinction between anti-Semitism and Judeophobia, which is just sort of more of a just sort of a, a negative bias, um, but not doesn't have any sort of political stake? Well, I use that as a kind of heuristic um, map for for the book because I couldn't use anti-Semitic because I wanted to use that in the very specific sense uh, of uh, referring to these movements in the 1880s. Now, anti-Semitism as a word doesn't even come into existence until uh, around 1880. We're not quite sure who used the word first, but it arose in that um, anti-Jewish context of the uh, early 1880s. And um, so you're, you're, you're dealing with something fairly specific when you're dealing with anti-Semitism if you're living in 1880. And a lot of the uh, individuals who lived at that time didn't think it was the right word, including Nietzsche. Nietzsche, Nietzsche says uh, in, in, his, in his notebooks, he writes about uh, miso-Juden. That is miso, the uh, prefix uh, for hatred of and Juden for Jews. This is what he calls the anti-Semites because that's a more correct formulation. Uh, they weren't against Semites. That is all the Semites. They were against just the Jews. And so anti-Semitic is really the wrong word for anti-Jewish, and people recognize that. The National Socialists recognized that and discouraged the use of that word. And people in Nietzsche's time also were taken aback by that, by that word because they were against the Jews and not necessarily against all Semites. So um, this is, a, this is a, what, what attracted me to it was the, the wrong use of this word. And so I, I looked at where it came from and what was going on and why it was, um, why it was being used. And then I saw that Nietzsche was reacting against something quite different than I had, um, than I had originally thought. That is, he wasn't uh, someone who turned against anti-Semitism because he was um, uh, didn't hold any prejudices against Jews or didn't hold any uh, uh, didn't uh, adhere to some cliches about the Jewish people and what Jews represented in Europe. He did it because he was against this specific movement, which was a much cruder uh, movement that suggested solutions that Nietzsche felt were um, extreme and unworkable and unrealistic in, in the time. And so, the, the, so that I have to make then a distinction between anti-Semitic thought, as it existed in Nietzsche's time, and Judeophobic thought or anti-Jewish thought, which is something uh, a little bit different. So during his lifetime, uh, anti-Semites didn't really consider him an ally, which is kind of a, a, a favor, favorable point for your argument. It's only after his death that... Um, his writing gets picked up and appropriated. Can you tell us a little bit about, about how groups, um, you know, co-opted him for sort of right-wing ends? And tell us uh, about his sister and the publication of his work. Mm -hmm. Well, the, fir <clears throat> the first thing is that um, at first, um, the anti-Semites did think he, he belonged to them. Before, before he started to write against anti-Semitism, they considered him to be an ally. And the reason they did was because he came out of the Wagner circle the Wagner circle, Richard Wagner, had written very many things against Jews, so they considered him to be part of the extended Wagner circle and thought he was a natural ally. 
Only when he started then to write against anti-Semitism did they see that he wasn't that much of an ally. And so there was conflict between him and the and and many anti-Semitic groups in the uh, late 1880s. But um, gradually, uh, the right wing, as you got into the 20th century, began to uh, adopt Nietzsche because of his kind of, um, let's say, oppositional stance toward the status quo. And we have to remember that uh, the right wing movement in the early part of the 20th century was not a conservative movement. It was opposed to the status quo. Even the even the National Socialist movement considered itself a movement rather than a party almost. So that uh, we're dealing with people who like this kind of oppositional character in Nietzsche. And eventually he was forgiven for his remarks against anti-Semitism, forgiven for his remarks against the German nation, which are the two pillars of, of the kind of uh, national socialist movement, anti-Semitism and, and, and ultranationalism. He was forgiven uh, for those by saying, well, in his time he had good reason to oppose the anti-Semites of his time. And he had good reason to oppose the Bismarckian nationalism of that time. But if he were living in our time, the speculation was, then he would be on our side, which, of course, is a, a kind of a um, an argument that's impossible to refute and impossible to prove. But that's how he gradually got um, got integrated into the right wing movement. He made many very positive remarks about war and the warrior, some of which. Um, People see as metaphorical, but were taken quite literally. So he became popular during World War One. I, I would say as the first big um, conservative um, uh, or right-wing appropriation of Nietzsche. And then throughout the Weimar Republic, he was uh, adopted by leftists as well as the right wing. He had appealed to both of them because of this kind of oppositional status. And only when 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 you get into um, the uh, Third Reich, after Hitler comes to power in 1933, as he looked upon throughout throughout the, the German academic world, although there was some controversy there as well, he was looked upon as a precursor of National Socialism because of of, uh, of, of very influential Nazis uh, picked him up as this kind of a precursor in the external world, that is, the world external to Germany. He was also seen as someone who had contributed to a kind of bellicose German profile, uh, and and therefore was uh, also seen as someone who was in line with uh, with National Socialism. So that was how he that was how he he became associated with them. After the war, there was an attempt in Germany by um, uh, various individuals uh, and in the United States um, by Walter Kaufmann mostly to exonerate Nietzsche in some way. And in this exoneration, uh, they looked uh, for someone to blame. And the person who got blamed for his anti-Semitism and for his um, uh, ultra-nationalism um, was uh, his sister, uh, 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 his sister Elizabeth, who um, herself um, had uh, known Hitler and was in charge of the Nietzsche archives for many years. Um, and um, so she was someone who was a natural uh, uh, person to uh, to blame for uh, for uh, putting Nietzsche in into this National Socialist camp. This, I feel, has been very unfair to Elizabeth, who wasn't a very nice person and was uh, kind of on the conservative 
um, right wing of the Weimar Republic, but was never herself really um, uh, someone who claimed that Nietzsche was, was, was anti-Semitic. That is, if you read what she wrote about Nietzsche, she always claimed that he wasn't an anti-Semite, that he wasn't anti-Jewish, that Wagner was the anti-Semite, and Nietzsche wasn't. And she herself, who had married one of the chief um, 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 agitators of the anti-Semitic movement, a man named Bernard Furster, and had moved with him to Paraguay to found a, a kind of a pure Aryan colony in Nueva Germania, she herself broke away from her anti-Semitism uh, by the 1890s and, real, and said publicly that she had no reason to oppose the Jews at all. Uh, so that um, blaming her was an easy thing after the war in order to, um, in order to um, uh, exonerate Nietzsche from any, um, from any guilt with regard to anti-Semitism. But it just wasn't true. It, it just wasn't, wasn't the right story. And uh, circumstantial evidence leads people to, uh, to blame Elizabeth for this because she was married to an anti-Semite, because she knew Hitler, uh, because Hitler came to the Nietzsche archives and was very favorably, uh, was photographed with, with Elizabeth because uh, Hitler also attended Elizabeth's funeral when she died in 1935. So all of this circumstantial evidence makes it appear that, that, that Elizabeth would have been someone who could have made Nietzsche into an anti-Semite. But she didn't. The, the one thing that she did do is she falsified some of his works. So she did tinker with his letters and a little bit with the texts that we that we have. But in if you look at what she did, there is nothing in what she did that makes Nietzsche more anti-Jewish than he was. There is nothing that um, that uh, excises the, the remarks against anti-Semitism which she includes in her version of his letters. There's nothing she does in his works that really makes him into an anti-Semite or an ultra-nationalist. So I think that people have taken this up very quickly, and uh, Elizabeth is still looked upon as the evil person who pushed Nietzsche into this camp. But if you look at the evidence soberly, you'll see that this just wasn't true. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about Wagner. You mentioned him a couple of times. Um, why is he so central to Nietzsche? Uh, and a larger question, I guess, is, is failure con to condemn something the same as approving it? Hmm. Well, that second question is, is, an e is, is a harder one to answer, but I can, I, I can talk a little bit about the relationship of Nietzsche and Wagner. Nietzsche met Wagner in 1868. Nietzsche at that time was a student. At, um, in, in Leipzig. So he hadn't even gotten his PhD. He didn't have a position as a professor. Wagner was already a, a well-known composer throughout Europe. He was a European celebrity at that time. The relationship that we, um, that we, that we sometimes imagine between the two is one uh, of equals, but they weren't equal at all. Wagner was actually from Nietzsche's father's generation, not from Nietzsche's generation, and 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 um, if you know something about Wagner, then you know that he had an entire entourage of people, and Nietzsche more or less became part of his entourage, not his intellectual equal. As so that when Nietzsche later on in the in the eighteen in eighteen eighty eight when he writes Nietzsche contra Wagner as a as a as a text, um, that is 
trying to put them on the same plane, but they were never on the same plane in terms of their European fame or their fame in Germany. So Nietzsche was very impressed by Wagner, became part of his entourage, and adopted um, most of his um, ideology in the um, in the early eighteen in the late eighteen sixties and the early eighteen seventies. And part of Wagner's ideology was frankly anti-Jewish, uh, very anti-Jewish. He wrote uh, Judaism and Music. That was a text that he'd written much earlier, but he republished this in eighteen sixty nine. And um, there was a tremendous response. This was when Nietzsche knew Wagner very well. Um, and Nietzsche was um, visiting his, um, his house in, um, in, in Triebschen, which was not very far from Basel. And so he would go there for Christmas and go there for holidays. And he was, he was close with the, with, the, with the Wagners and with Wagner's wife, uh, Cosima. Uh, and um, uh, this, this kind of... Um, uh, text uh, really had a uh, uh, Judaism and music had had a tremendous um, um, impact because there was a great controversy about it and Jews were not very happy about it. There was some disruption of performances of Wagner. Nietzsche learned all of, uh, about these things while he was uh, while he was involved with Wagner and he didn't object to this. What Nietzsche did was he tried to fit in with Wagnerian ideology. So in one of the studies um, that he that he wrote, one of the early lectures that he delivered, um, which would eventually go into the, his first um, major non-philological work, which was The Birth of Tragedy, he wrote about Socratism and says Socratism, which is a negative for Nietzsche, Socratism is this rationalistic uh, movement in Greece that destroys Greek tragedy. He wrote Socratism in the modern world is the Jewish press. Well, he sent a copy of this lecture to the Wagners, and the Wagners were very upset about this. They were upset not because they didn't agree with this, but because they felt that Nietzsche would ruin his career and his reputation, endanger his position and his standing with uh, making remarks like this, which were, of course, remarks that Wagner had already made in, in various contexts. But Wagner was, uh, was much better able to, um, to, to absorb the criticism. So they advised Nietzsche, as far as we can tell from the correspondence, not to do this. Kosima writes to him and says, I agree with everything you're saying, but don't say this so directly. When it's time, we'll all come out and we'll make these kinds of statements, but this isn't the right thing to do. So from then on, during the Wagnerian uh, period uh, of, of Nietzsche's writings up until the mid-1870s, Nietzsche never mentions the Jews or Judaism again in that kind of a context. All of the references that he has to Jews and Judaism while he's a Wagnerian acolyte are references that are somewhat hidden. Some of them are pretty obvious. He'll talk about nomadic moneylenders, for example. There's nobody living in the 1870s who wouldn't have identified that phrase, nomadic moneylenders, with Jews. But Nietzsche refrained from mentioning Jews in that kind of a negative cultural light, not mentioning them directly during that period in the, in the early 1870s. And, that, and at the same time, he did try to adhere to this anti-Jewish Wagnerian ideology and did so, I think, in various works. And I try to show that in the, uh, in the book as well. Now, the second question that you ask, you'll have, have to repeat and, and tell me what kind of a context you're, you're talking about. 
Well, it's um, it seemed that um, you know, Nietzsche was not disapproving uh, of what uh, Wagner was saying, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he was approving. Mm, yeah, to, to some extent, Nietzsche Nietzsche was not as ideologically prone as Wagner was, but we and and especially in, in his in his earliest work, um, the the birth of tragedy. Nietzsche would not make these direct marks about Jews, but I think that that's explained by the, the Wagner's putting a prohibition on it. But if, if you do look at his, at his writings, you'll see that uh, the, what, um, what could be called the uh, anti-Semitic cultural code of the early 1870s, something that Wagnerians would have recognized as anti-Jewish, that that has uh, a prominent place in Nietzsche's writings, not only in The Birth of Tragedy, where you find it um, more or less under this kind of a Greek veneer or this uh, veneer of dealing with ancient Greece, but also and more prominently in the four untimely meditations that he writes, where he did try to enter into cultural criticism. Anti-Jewish thought was never a major um, uh, a, a kind of a major concern of Nietzsche's. That is, Nietzsche did not share with Wagner the kind of paranoia about uh, Jews in culture and Jews in music. Uh, although he did feel, and at many points, that Jews were the natural opposition to the greatness of um, the Wagnerian Renaissance that he desired so much. And if you look at the reception of the birth of tragedy, just for an example, Nietzsche and his friends um, um, uh, were upset at the reaction against the birth of tragedy and ascribed it to a conspiracy of Berlin Jews, which was a little bit absurd because the person who wrote the main criticism of the birth of tragedy, a man named Volomovitz Möllendorf, was himself not pro-Jewish at all and was kind of anti-Semitic later on in his life. He was a very pro he became a very prominent classicist, but he was the person who wrote against Nietzsche and he was then um, uh, defamed by Nietzsche and his circle of friends as someone who was in the hands of a Jewish conspiracy in Berlin. These were the kinds of um, paranoid um, uh, fantasies that Wagner harbored and that Nietzsche uh, touched on at times, but of course wasn't invested in quite as much. Well, Bob, we're running uh, short on time, so I want to ask you another question. Sure, uh, what what would Nietzsche have made of National Socialism or or the Nazis uh, had he lived to be, you know, eighty or ninety? <laughs> that's that's a very difficult question to answer because I think that there that there that there's evidence in his uh, writings and in his letters that he would have um, hated. Uh, national socialism, because it was, after all, a movement of the masses. Nietzsche was against uh, mass movements. He was against ultra-nationalism. Um, so uh, you can certainly, and he, and he was against this kind of crude anti-Semitism, which the Nazis displayed. So there, there is evidence that he would have uh, detested uh, national socialism. On the other hand, you can say that Nietzsche possibly could have seen uh, uh, Hitler as a reincarnation of Napoleon, someone that Nietzsche admired very much in the 19th century, someone who has taken control of the destiny of the German people and of Europe and seen him as a, a kind of a, of a, of a superman 
someone who uh, was um, was finally uh, controlling German destiny in the way that it should be controlled, and someone who was an embodiment of the will to power. You can read things both ways. It's difficult to say what Nietzsche would have would have done unless he were in that position, and he never was in that position. So that's why I'm rather careful with this and try to describe Nietzsche um, in his own time and how he actually reacted to things in the 19th century. That's all we can really say. The rest is speculation. But you can look at other philosophers, someone like Martin Heidegger, for example, who did join in with National Socialism for at least a time, and you can say that possibly Nietzsche would have been seduced into doing so as well. It's hard to say. Mm-hmm. Well, Bob, we've taken up a lot of your time, so any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and what are you working on next? Well, I'm, I'm working on the original, um, the original book that I uh, um, had started on, and that's to place Nietzsche in his own time with these various social questions and scientific questions. I'm almost finished with that book. So, uh, and one of the chapters will be Nietzsche and the Jewish question, a kind of a shortened version of, uh, of, of, of the book that we've been discussing. And um, I, I hope to have that finished um, over the summer. Uh, so that's where that's where I'm at. Uh, and um, I think this book will, um, uh, you know, the coming book will um, uh, properly describe Nietzsche and his relationship to his own times. Bob, that sounds like a great project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Nietzsche's Jewish Problem Between Anti-Semitism and Anti-Judaism, published this year by Princeton University Press. The author is Robert Holub. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. 